it's a new season. We're already approaching week four. Antonio Brown was on the Raiders. Then he was on the Patriots for one game. Now he's enrolled in Central Michigan. Le'Veon Bell is with the 0-3 Jets. Odell Beckham Jr. is bowling out in Cleveland. Daniel Jones became an instant hero here in New York City after his comeback win last Sunday against the Buccaneers. Let's see if he can keep it up this weekend against the Redskins. A bunch of quarterbacks are changing. There's no Big Ben in Pittsburgh. No Cam Newton in Carolina. But the one thing that hasn't changed, where I'm putting my money down on all the games. MyBookie.ag is the place to bet on football every single weekend. MyBookie has better bonuses and way more prop bets than any other sportsbook, period. This year, they're hosting the first ever online handicapping super contest. First place is guaranteed to win at least $100,000. It only costs $100 to enter. All you got to do is pick five NFL games against the spread every week. You climb that leaderboard and score your share of the huge cash prize pool. I'd only recommend this service to my listeners that's been great to me. That's why mybookie.ag is always the right play. You bet, you win, they pay. It's that simple. MyBookie.ag has live in-game betting on every single NFL game. They got the most rewarding player perks in the business. And for all the fantasy guys out there, I always say it's a love-hate relationship with your fantasy team. You can even bet the over or under on how many fantasy points a player will score each game. In-game betting is the best and my favorite perk on MyBookie.ag. Because you're never out of the game. You're watching the game. Each play, each interception, touchdown, fumble... You can change your pick right there. And the one thing I love about the in-game betting, I feel it really benefits the knowledgeable sports fan. You can watch a game. It might be 7 nothing, but you can see the momentum turning. Boom, sign on to MyBookie.ag and change that bet right there on the spot. MyBookie.ag will double your first deposit up to $1,000. It's going to double it for you. Use the promo code SAFO to activate this offer. Visit MyBookie.ag online today. That's MyBookie. Dot .ag do not forget to use the promo code SAFO when creating your account to claim the bonus visit my bookie online today that's my bookie m y b o o k e .ag and do not forget to use the promo code SAFO when creating your account to claim the bonus listen it's simple you bet you win you get paid and one more read before we talk to one of the greatest chess players in the world today are you tired of your feet hurting in your dress shoes most people think it's their shoes, but you know it's not. It's the socks. HeshiSocks.com solved this problem. They created the most comfortable socks to keep your feet fresh and feeling great. Most fashion and dress socks are expensive, horribly constructed, and provide zero protection. Not Heshi Socks. Heshi Socks are cushioned in the heel, foot, and the toe. They have the arch support in the center, so your feet don't slosh around your shoes. Listen, I've said this before, you can play basketball, you can work out in them, you can run in them. Anything you think of, you rock Heshi socks. They're made with breathable Pima cotton and an antimicrobial to kill that stink. But best of all, they're designed to stay up. You're looking classy in your suit, you look good. You don't have to bend over, pull the socks up and down, you cross your legs, you're not going to see your leg hair. It's stylish to wear the shorter length pants now with a suit. So you cross your legs. You want to show the nice Heshi socks. No one wants to see your leg hair. No one wants to see that. And with Heshi socks, the socks never go down. They stay up the whole day. Go to HeshiSocks.com. That's H-E-S-H-I-Socks.com. Enter the promo code SAFO30 at checkout. 
for 30% off your entire order. You'll never find such high quality footwear at this price. That's a promise. HetchySocks.com offers an array of colors and styles from the basic to the fashion to the ankle socks to the rugby socks. I can keep going. If you're listening to today's podcast on release day or a few days after, I'm currently flying 16 hours to Nairobi, Kenya, and comfort on these flights are paramount. Dude, 16 hours on a flight, you better be comfortable. What's the best way to stay comfortable on a flight? Have your feet nice and comfy. In the air for 16 hours, your feet are going to swell up. Sometimes your feet are going to sweat. Sometimes they get cold, not with Heshi socks. I've flown twice so far with Heshi socks, a short flight and then a long 10-hour flight. Along with my passport, it's the most important thing I pack during these long flights. Go to HeshiSocks.com. Use the promo code SAFBO30. The best socks in the game right now, Heshi Socks. And now, Grandmaster. This is Grandmaster Sam Shanklin, and you're listening to the Mike Sappho Podcast. What's going on, pal? Thanks for calling in. Uh, not much. I've been having a, a pretty crappy week because uh, last month I suffered the flexor tendon in my left hand, so I've been recovering and can't lift weights, can't exercise, which I really miss already, but, you know, I'm hanging in there. Wait, how did you get the injury? Uh, so I, I had a cupboard, uh, and I opened it and grabbed a glass container. And then I guess my hand was soapy or something, and so it fell, and then I tried to catch it, and it hit the counter and broke. When my left hand was right on top of it, this giant shard of broken glass just sliced right through it. Now, we all know who you are, this chess phenomenon. I have to tell you, I don't know much about chess, but I've always been intrigued. I'm a huge sports guy, but I've always been intrigued by the game and the players. I was absolutely floored at the rigorous uh, travel schedule you guys keep. Yeah, I mean, there's tournaments all over the world, especially for players based in the U.S. Uh, it's even worse because most of the top events are in Europe and then sometimes Asia. Now it's changed a little bit now that we have a major chess hub in St. Louis, which still is, you know, travel for me, but that's, you know, a three-, four-hour flight. That's not the end of the world. But, yeah, I mean, uh, this year I've traveled over half the year. Now that is too much uh, for sure. I, I definitely work myself harder in that regard, and I think I started to really lose steam by the end. But, and an average year, I'm still traveling 35, 40% of the year. It's, it's much like being an athlete in another sport is you just have to travel around the world. It's how it is. Um, uh, traveling is my biggest passion. I, I'm leaving in a week. I travel obsessively. It's like my, probably my biggest passion to do. Traveling wise, do you ever get to enjoy it? Cause I know you just got back. Where were you? Just in Russia just now? Yeah, I was in Kantimansisk, uh, Siberia, which is really out there. Um, you, don't, you certainly don't get to enjoy it during tournaments because you're just so focused. But there's plenty of times, for example, where let's say you have two tournaments in Europe and 10 days in between, and it does not make sense to come all the way home, like back to California for like whatever that is, five days, and then turn right around for Europe. Uh, you will, I'll just go somewhere in Europe and play around. So, for example, I was playing the Olympiad last year in Batumi, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I had to play a match in Amsterdam, uh, or not actually, yeah, somewhere in the Netherlands, Hogeman, uh, about 10 days later. And so I just went to Prague because I like Prague and hung out, and that was fun. Uh, so you do get these kinds of times, but it tends to be more the buffer time as opposed to the playing time when you get to see stuff. Now, you, you're coming off a bad loss uh, you told me about. Do you come right home, or do you decompress mentally, and do you sightsee, or do you just want to come home and get in your own safe space? In this particular sense, I wanted to come home. Uh, I was tired and... I'm very unhappy, but uh, in general, I mean, I certainly, I tend to make my plans before I know what the result of a tournament would be. I mean, you have to book your travel well in advance, choose what tournaments you're going to play. So uh, I don't really change my plans very much depending on how I do. But uh, in this particular case, which was the World Cup, 
which is an elimination tournament and not a very common format, you can't really book your tickets because you don't know how long you're going to be there. Most events you will, you know, when the last round is and you're going to be around till then and then you leave. But in the World Cup, you know, you could uh, leave in the first two days or you could be still there after four weeks. So you can't really book your travel in advance. While doing research on you and the whole chess world, why isn't there more elimination games? I know as a sports guy, if you told me there's a big chess match, I watch any event. I'd love to watch a knockout event rather than, like, I guess, compiling to see who wins. I have a long since asked the same question. I'm a huge believer in knockout events. And there's they're growing a little bit, but still they're in the minority among major chess events. If I were to make an analogy, the only wildly successful individual sport I know of is tennis. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I guess you could say boxing to some extent, but I don't think that's quite as popular. Tennis is the one that has really made it to the top where all their, where all their top players, you know, down to like number 50 are going to be millionaires and things like this. And, with tons of people following all the top events. I mean, I'm not a huge tennis fan, but I can't think of a single tennis tournament that isn't knockout. And so, you know, when you have a chess tournament, when I won the U.S. championship last year, and in the last round I was playing someone who at the time had, like, two losses, one win, and, like, seven draws, and I was playing for first place, and there was the world number two right behind me. Yeah, I won the game and won the tournament, but it was a little bit of an anticlimactic finish. And uh, and chess were... I think as chess players, we're a little bit too obsessed with total fairness. Mm-hmm. Because when you have a knockout-style tournament, whoever is unfortunate enough to play one of the best players early is at a huge disadvantage. Well, if you have a round-robin-style tournament, uh, everybody plays against everybody, it's 100% fair. But with that, when you, you're sort of sacrificing excitement for fairness. And while in general in tennis you could say that's sort of not fair that somebody has to play somebody better earlier on and could just go home after that, in general the best player or whoever played the best that tournament is going to win. And the only sort of quote-unquote unfairness starts to affect people who are not going to win the tournament anyway. In general, this uh, this balancing of fairness and excitement is, is not an easy thing to pull off, but I think chess has gone way too far in the direction of fairness. And I think that If you look at, if you ask any chess player, would you want chess to be a little bit less fair? I'm sure they'd say no. But what if they said, would you want chess to be a little, little bit less fair? We'd have 10 times as many sponsors organizing tournaments with a lot more money. They would immediately make that sacrifice. I think a large part of this also is that chess, uh, at least until recently, was not really an American game. Mm-hmm. And our prize payouts are more consistent with, let's say, ec- the economy of places like Europe, uh, where Oftentimes, like if you win a tournament, let's let's say you win a small open tournament in Europe with some good players. But, for example, I won in Beale in 2016, and I got, I think, $6,000 for that. And then second place was $4,500, and third place was $3,500. And the difference between, like, first and fourth was just not that much money. Well, a more American-style tournament, you could have, you know, first place be $100,000, and by the time you're down to 10th, you're going to be um, – You're going to be down to like three thousand, mm-hmm. and at the same time, this European tournament, I was given, I'm given a starting fee to come and play anyway, and I uh, get my hotel and travel paid for and stuff. While in the U.S., uh, you have to pay for all your own stuff and maybe even an entry fee. So it's it's just a little bit of a different philosophy in that regard. As an American, I'm sort of with you. I like the higher stakes, knockout style things, pay the winners, but uh, it's just a different way of running things. Now, Sam, you, you keep mentioning tournaments. I looked up the. Upcoming matches, there's matches in Tel Aviv, Switzerland, Germany. What makes you decide where you're going to go play? Well, part of it is where I get invited to. 
the best tournaments in the world are all based on invitations. And so, for example, I'm not getting invited to very many tournaments right now just because I've had a pretty lousy year, uh, where, like, at the beginning of the year, I was number 22 in the world. Now I'm probably number, like, 40-something. So it's I'm obviously still a very good player, and form is temporary, class is forever. Uh, so I do believe I'll be back at that level sooner rather than later. But once you fall into, say, number 40 or so in the world, as I have, and the best tournaments in the world are going to be 12 players, I'm going to struggle a lot more to get invited okay. to these tournaments. So for now, I'm going to be playing basically wherever I'm invited as as a decent event. But uh, in general, that's, that's mostly how it happens. If you get invited to two tournaments at the same time, uh, then you have to start making decisions based on which one pays more, which one you think will have stronger players, what your goals are, things like that. I read uh, St. Louis has something with all the schools are doing chess now. And is yeah. that why they're becoming like a focus point of it? Like more, maybe more tournaments will be there? Well, uh, St. Louis is – the big thing about St. Louis is this man, Rex Sinkfield, who's a very wealthy benefactor who has done amazing things for chess. I mean, chess was a joke when I was growing up, and Rex showed up when I was about 17. So I was most of the way through my youth and my development, but I was really just starting to join young adulthood and become a professional player. And what he's done in these 11 years has just been out of this world. The U.S. championship was a joke before that, and now – the prize fund for first place, the prize for first place at U.S. Championship in my first time was like $6,000 or $7,000. And when I won it last year, it was 50. I mean, that's, wow. a huge, that's a huge jump to make in just 11 years. So he's done this huge amount of work with the St. Louis Chess Club, creating a real professional chess circuit in the United States, which is, uh, and he's also done a lot of work in training our younger players, giving them these opportunities. That's why the kids today are so much better than the kids were when I was young. And uh, in addition, he has introduced chess into public schools and I think every single public school in the city of St. Louis. So he's done an absolutely fantastic thing for the chess world and made St. Louis the chess hub of the United States and really the world in my opinion. What made me email you is uh, I'm a big sports guy. I'm on ESPN and there was a thing, an article like last week about chess guys running, eating healthy. I'm like, this is clickbait. It's a joke. I never realized how physically fit you have to be. And you like, you take that seriously. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned in the beginning, I'm getting unhappy because I haven't been to the gym in a month because of my darn hands. But it's, uh, I mean, I'm semi-addicted to exercise in that regard. If you look at the best chess players in the world, it is almost without exception extremely athletic young men. The same way, because a healthy mind and a healthy body go very much hand in hand. As a sports fan, you should know the best athletes in the world are not dumb Hercules guys. They're guys with brains, you know, who are also athletically gifted. You know, and it's, uh, you'd be... I mean, I'm sure you may even know, a lot of mainstream athletes are chess fans. And a lot of chess fans are, are chess players, or pro, pro chess guys, are fans of professional sport. I certainly am. And uh, it's definitely changed a lot over the years. Basically, I've, there's always been this theory that chess is a mix of sport, science, and art. And every player, every professional player is to some degree an artist, to some degree a scientist, and to some degree an athlete. And how you would proportion yourself kind of changes depending on your personality and the way you play. And over time, there was a real question about uh, which sort of philosophy towards chess was best with you know, great players of everyone. And in the last 20 to 30 years, athletes have dominated. It has just not been close. And, uh, and it's really important. And, if, you know, there was an era where, you know, the best players in the world were in their 50s and they're all smokers and stuff. That is so long gone. The best, <laughs> I mean, the best decade of chess players is 20s. The second best decade is 30s, and the third best decade is teens. Really? Which is probably similar to most physical sports. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would think that, you know, 
even 38, 39, these guys are probably better than the best teenagers, but 50s are not. And uh, it's, I think it's very consistent in that regard. And, um, and in general, just being able to focus well. I mean, you know, you might be brilliant in the first hour of your first game, but you need to be just as well in the sixth hour of your tenth game. And that comes down to physical fitness, especially when you've been traveling and you're jet lagged and you're tired and you're facing unfamiliar food from another country. It's, it's very, it's very physical in that regard. Well, that's actually what I was going to ask you. Diet wise, how do you keep up? Because you said you're just in Serbia, you're here and there, eating healthy diet wise while you're traveling. That's uh, that an issue. Uh, it's tough. It depends on where you go. I have a very specific meal that I eat before every game, which is a bowl of non-fat Greek yogurt with low sugar granola and half a banana. This is about six, seven hundred mm-hmm. calories. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's very healthy and nothing heavy. That will give me the energy needed to play well in the game. And if I if it's a long game and I get hungry, I always bring like an apple or an energy bar to to keep me going. Uh, I've gotten really tired of this meal, but I've found that it's uh, it helps my concentration. So I just I don't break that. I'm not, I'm not particularly religious about what I eat for dinner after the games are over, but my pregame meal is very consistent in that regard. You go to China, good luck shopping for yeah. these ingredients. But it depends on what country you're in. And in most places, I mean, non-fat Greek yogurt, this is not like I'm asking for caviar. I mean, it's it's not particularly difficult to find in most countries. When you think of chess players, now I'm going to go me. Like I said, not a, I don't know anything about chess. You think of like the seven-year-old kid in Washington Square Park in New York playing like 20 guys from the movies. Right. When I When I read about you, you kind of got a later start in life. Why was that? Well, I'm very much an, an anomaly. I had a normal American upbringing, which, I mean, like, of all the best players in the U.S., like, I'm the only one who went to high school. Like, all these other kids were homeschooled. And I would never claim that they were they're uneducated or anything. They've had a very different upbringing. They're not stupid. They're not, you know, unrefined or anything like that. They're just, they're just different. And uh, I started late. I started with an after-school chess class when I was nine years old. I played my first tournament just before I turned 12. Nowadays, like, you've got – I think there was a grandmaster at age 12. I mean, that's ridiculous. Uh, so I started late, and some people see that as a handicap, and then undoubtedly it was, and I'm sure I would be stronger now if I had started earlier. But at the same time, I don't want to overstate it because, yes, from age 6 to 12 or whatever that most people had that I didn't, you're going to develop. But your 12-year-old brain is going to be so much faster at processing things than a 6-year-old that I caught up reasonably fast, and uh, and this helped me really come along. And who knows if I would be stronger now if I had started younger. I may have also gotten burned out. I mean, I'm very happy that I I grew up healthy and happy in playing sports because some people are happy to just, you know, be focused on chess their whole life, you know, from age three or whatever. I, I don't know, I mean, what that would have been for me, but I don't think I would have been very happy. I needed to play sports and expand my mind as well. When did you know you were different? Because there's different between playing as a hobby. When did you know, like, all right, I'm different on a different level? Uh, it's tough to say. I always, I always knew I was different on a personality level just because of the drive I had to keep working. And I pretty quickly figured out that I was different on the talent level. And it's funny because I don't consider myself especially talented among the best players in the world, but that's, I consider myself untalented the same way you would consider Steph Curry short. It's just because the guys around him are tall. If you stand him next to me, like an average athletic American man, like, he's still going to look like a giant. So, you know, if you put me in a room with 10,000 people, it's very likely that I'm the most talented one in there mm-hmm. in terms of chess. But if you put me up against the rarefied standards of the world's elite, which I'm standing next to and playing with all the time, I don't think my talent level is particularly high compared to theirs, if that makes sense. But 
I just, the speed at which I picked things up, I just, I didn't really think about it that much. I just realized I was getting a lot better really, really quickly in ways that were starting to turn heads. And I guess that's sort of the moments I knew that I, I had chances to get better at this game. Was it a tough balancing act with school and having a normal life in chess? Because, you know, you, you see like guys like Tiger Woods, these guys, who, and the Williams sisters in tennis. It's tennis and golf from the minute they wake up, the minute they go to sleep. And you've always preached, like, I have a life. I like other things. Was that a hard balance for you? It certainly was a hard balance for me, and it probably would have been easier if I had discovered my abilities younger. Mm-hmm. For instance, if I was uh, if I had started when I was six, and by the time I was nine years old or something, I was by far the best nine-year-old in the United States, and I was, like, well on track to break all the records, maybe I w- it would have been easier for me to prioritize chess more. And also, of course, when you're that young, and even into your teens, really it's not so much you and your decision as much as your parents. I mean, you're still a child at that point. Mm-hmm. And my parents did a good job raising me for sure. But, for example, when I was, like, 15 or something, and this is a time when you're really starting to get old enough that you can give your parents a lot of input into what kind of decisions you want to make for your future, but you're not really old enough to be making them alone. Um, My parents didn't want me to be a professional chess player, especially my mother, and honestly, they were right. I wasn't good enough then to really make it, and I hadn't shown – I had shown that I was going to get very good, and I hadn't shown that I was going to be a superstar. And if you're a parent – and your kid, and like, I never asked for this, but let's say your kid says to you, I want to be a professional chess player. I want to stop going to school and just do chess full time. And you're looking at the numbers you're like, well, for your age group, you're number 10 in the United States and you're number 200 in the world. And that's just your one specific age 15. As a parent, you would not let this happen. Of course and not. So, right. So I certainly don't think they made the wrong decision or anything in that regard. I think they did the right thing. But uh, as I went to college, that's when it became tougher because I took a gap year, and I didn't improve very much just because I was on my own for the first time. I was 18 years old. I had no money. I had to work and pay rents, and I learned a lot of life lessons, but my chess didn't really go very far as a result because I had all these other pressures I was facing. But uh, by the time I was in college, and I was really improving a lot, and I came to college as, you know, number 35 or something in the U.S., and by the time I left, I was closing in on number two. It was... At some point, it was tough, but the moment I really knew that chess was my number one priority and college was my number two priority was uh, when I was invited to make my debut on the U.S. national team during finals week, and I said yes before talking to my professors, Like, which basically if they had said, no, you can't do that, I probably meant I would have had to just skip that semester or drop out of school. And the fact that I just said yes and signed my contract without even consulting them, and I, that was the moment I understood that I'd play chess first and i go to school second. You're ranked in the world. I think you said you're in the 40s now, but you were as high as 20. In the United States, I think you were fourth. Next to you, I wrote this down. Next to your name, <clears throat> there's a number. It says 21, uh, 2705. Explain to me what that number means. So that's, a, that's your rating, and the higher your rating gets, the better you are. So I peaked at 2731, and now I'm 2702 because I had a subpar World Cup. But uh, it's just a function of wins and losses and who you beat. Uh, to put it, and the better you get, the less your rating moves per game. And, uh, but also it depends. So if, if, if I beat Magnus Carlsen, the world champion, I'll probably get like 6.2, 6.3 points, something like that. If I beat you, I will get 0.8. If I lose, if I lose to you, I will lose 9.2. So it depends on, it depends on who you play. It calculates the expected score, your likelihood of winning. Uh, so for example, if I were to play against you, my expected score would be, 0.92. That's the highest expected score. I'm supposed to beat you 92% of the time. Realistically, it's going to be higher than that, but uh, um, 
that's the highest one. And so let's say I beat you. I get one point from that. And because my expected score was 0.92, I take the score I got, one, minus my expected score, 0.92. That lands me at 0.08. I multiply that by 10 because that's my K factor. And that gets to 0.8. And that is my rating change. So for you, it must be a nerve-wracking when you're playing someone not as good if they pull off the upset. That can really hurt your ratings, right? Significantly more stressful to play against weaker players and stronger players. Your, your risk of playing stronger players is much less. I looked up Magus because I know who that is just from documentaries, and he's a 28.76 the last time I checked. How high does it go? It, I mean, in theory, it can go up to infinity, but that's not really going to happen. Uh, I mean, Magnus is the strongest ever by quite some margin, actually. I mean, Gary Kasparov, my hero was, as of from my childhood, was number two. Uh, but, you know, if Magnus, for example, wins every game from now for the rest of his life, he's going to just go to infinity. But, of course, he's not going to do that because he's a human being. And if you look at his last tournament where he tied for first and he, against the best, all the best players in the world, he made nine of his games were draws and he won two of them. That's not a, That's a pretty normal result for him, actually. And his rating didn't move very much, I don't think. But, uh, you know, if he had just won all 11 games, which, of course, will not happen, uh, he would have gone up a ton. I mean, so there's a – people often debate, will Magnus touch 2,900? And I don't know. I'm kind of 50-50 on it, I think. <laughs> he might peak at 2,898. He might get to 2,902. Who knows? But in theory, it can go up forever. But in practice, it doesn't. One of the coolest titles – like, if you don't do – any kind of uh, martial arts, but you know what a black belt is. You yeah. don't play chess. You know what a grandmaster is. So yeah. you're winning. You're like, uh, you know, you're climbing the ranks. Obviously, you're winning at a young age. When does the word grandmaster, when does it come into your sight? Or does that sight hit you when you start playing competitively like, I need to be a grandmaster? Well, I mean, that's the, uh, I mean, that's the highest title apart from world champion, which only one person can hold at a time. Uh, but grandmaster, I mean, if you remember that those numbers you're talking about, a grandmaster needs at least 2,500. And needs to have a few, and and three results of 2,600 level or higher. So it's it's very tough. And if you think these numbers, a good way to think about it is 125 points roughly represents a doubling of ability. So if you start at like whatever you are, probably like 500 in your first game or something like that, and you think about how many times you have to gain 125 points to get to grandmaster, how many times you have to double your ability, it's absurd. It's very, it's a lot. And, you know, Magnus at this point, according to that metric, is uh, about twice as good as me or a little bit more even. Uh, and, you know, if you think about the effort it took me to get to where I am today, if this analogy proves correct, which I do think it does, it would take me that much energy to get from where I am now to where he is. It's so if you say how high can you go, imagine Magnus, the greatest player of all time, for him to gain 125 points and double his ability, that feels completely impossible. When you're playing, you hit the number, you see you can, like the level, you can be a grandmaster soon. You know if you win the game, how does it work? If you know you win this match, you can be a grandmaster. And how's the ceremony? Is it like big pomp and circumstance? How does that work? I mean, it, you, well, you'll submit your paperwork. You know, this was my peak rating, and these were my three performances of 2,600 or higher. Uh, for me, there wasn't much of a party just because I got hit with some technicalities, and I should have been a grandmaster like six to seven months before I actually got the title. Uh, because of technical reasons. It's not super important, but uh, it, it used to be a much bigger deal than it is. I mean, basically, the, the, the requirements for Grandmaster 
were set in place, I'm not a great historian, but sometime like the 1940s or 1950s, and they have changed very little in that time. And there were like 20 grandmasters in the world then. And if you were a grandmaster, that meant you were just one of the best players on the planet. Mm-hmm. And you were potentially going to challenge for the world championship. Nowadays, that's different because the, um, the qualifications have not changed very much, while the level has just improved enormously thanks to the knowledge we've had from studying the games of the players of the past, the advent of computers. So now we've got, you know, 1,500 grandmasters in the world, some of whom have a serious run, chance of running for the world championship. Others have absolutely no chance. It's still an elite title, but it doesn't, at least for people within the chess world, it doesn't feel nearly as big a deal if you're like, oh, I'm a grandmaster, congrats, you're number 1,400 in the world. It, it doesn't feel as... It's, it's, a, it's an accomplishment, but it, it feels more like a stepping stone than a final goal. Well, speaking of stepping stones, I looked you up. You won the 2018 U.S. Championship. Yes. Was that an upset, or were you, like, one of the favorites uh, going That's in there? Big upset. Uh, so the U.S. Championship is very tough. At the time, we had number, like, two, six, and seven in the world. We were the top three seeds. And then there was a big drop-off to, like, four guys who were around my level, all of us, like, number 80 or so in the world. And I just ripped through the field. I had the second best performance ever. I beat out the world's no- – I mean, I, I outscored the world number two, three, and seven. And my performance rating was 2881, I think. No, it was 2886. So it's higher than Magnus is today for someone like number 80-something in the world. That's bizarre. I mean, I've never played like that again. I mean, I, I was on the best – I mean – I played the best chess of my life and got the best, the most luck of my life all at the same time. And it just, it was a perfect storm. I mean, it was a huge, huge upset. Was it like being in the zone? And, like you mentioned Steph Curry. Were you just, you knew you were on fire after a few matches? Like, I'm unstoppable right now? I was fine. It didn't even start that strong. So, like, my first two games were both draws. And in this time, uh, among those those three guys, the guy who was number two in the world had won one of his two games and drawn the other. The guy who was number six in the world had won both of his games. So here I am looking at, like, you know, the number two and six in the world, both of whom already have more points than me. So I have to catch them and pass them, and they're this good. It felt – but then rounds three and four, I won both games, and I was black in both games, and white gets the first move, which is a pretty noticeable advantage at this level. So to win two games in a row with black – against really strong guys helped a lot and I just kept winning and by the end I mean the last round was nerve-wracking but I think one of my best qualities is that I don't really get nervous while I'm playing I sometimes get nervous before games I don't sleep that well but once I sit down I'm tunnel zoned which I think is a very important quality to have where was the U.S. championships where was it St. Louis of course and how'd you celebrate Honestly, I was, I had all these dreams of what I was going to do to celebrate. I was in, <laughs> I was in bed at nine o'clock. I was so tired. I was so flipping tired at the end of this tournament. It, it took everything out of me. I was, I was a bit sick in the beginning and it was 11 rounds and exhausting and I was working so hard by the end, but a lot of my games were really long too, which I mean, sometimes your games are shorter, sometimes they're longer. These were long games that I was playing there and I was just so tired. I, I had no major celebrations. Um, but, yeah. How did your game change throughout the years? As you're getting older, you said, like, you know, you sometimes you peak 20, 30, you know, mentally, physically. How does your game change differently? Does your style change? Does, how do you see your opponents change? How does that work? Well, you're forced to change. So, basically, your brain starts slowing down much younger than anybody wants to admit, like, probably before you're even 20 years old. But uh, what you're losing in terms of raw processing power, you're gaining in terms of experience, time studying the game, things like this. 
And in most things you can ever do, the experience and knowledge is going to be more important. If you think about the world's best lawyers and doctors, they're not 17-year-old kids. They're oftentimes even people whose brains have slowed down quite a bit, but it's the knowledge and experience that really counts. While in chess, the raw calculating power and speed at which you can do it is incredibly important. And it's around 30 when I think that this rate at which your calculating power is decreasing uh, is more important than the knowledge you're gaining. And before 30, you're going to be getting better because the knowledge is more important. But as I've gotten older, I've definitely gotten a little bit less direct. I've gotten more patient, less aggressive, things like this. Um, you don't want to let that go too much. But, for example, if I used to be a hyper-combative player, always looking for very complicated positions uh, where knowledge of the game won't help you very much, you just have to dive into the jungle and figure out what's going on, pull apart a huge mess, that's a spot that tends to favor younger players. And, you know, when you're 19 years old, that's usually you. And when you're 27 years old and you're in the older third of the tournament, it's not you anymore. And you have to adjust as such. So I definitely became more patient as the years have passed. I'm going to try to make this a comparison. I have a lot of UFC guys on my show. Right. And they say, like, the older UFC guys said, when we grew up, we fought one discipline, but we're decent in the other disciplines enough to fight. Now kids are coming up, like these 8, 9, 10-year-old kids, up to 15 they're good in every single discipline. Is chess similar like that too? Like you're strong in one part, but now the younger kids are coming up, maybe different in all different aspects of it? I think across every single professional sport I'm aware of, professionalism has increased from a young age. Um, one thing about chess is you have to play every position that comes in front of you, so you do have to play everything well. If I were to make an analogy, imagine you're incredibly fast, you run really fast, you have perfect coordination, you're great at kicking the ball with your feet, you're great at shooting the ball, and you totally suck at stopping the ball with your hands, that's fine. Don't be a goalie. You'll still be a great soccer player. Well, as a chess player, if you're great in the opening, you're great in the middle game, you're great at tactics, but you're really bad at technical endgames, what happens when you get a technical endgame? And, and it's not something you can avoid. So and I've definitely noticed with younger players, they're getting better at that. Uh, I mean, they're getting better, period, compared to what they were before. But, uh, yeah, they're definitely more well-rounded than they used to be. Sports, traveling, and my third other passion is reading. And I saw you have a book, Small Steps to Giant Improvement, Master Porn Playing Chess. Incidentally, the sequel to that, I just got my copies for it yesterday. Oh, really? Congratulations. Yeah, so it's, it's not released yet. It's going to be released on uh, November 20th, but you can pre-order it from my website already, but it, it won't ship for a couple of months. But, yeah. And what made you want to write a book? So the first book I wrote, uh, largely because I, 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 I thought I was losing a bet to my coach, it was funny. He, um, we made a bet. Uh, it was a race. Me to break 2,700, which is sort of the magic number in chess that makes you elite. And him uh, to get under, I think it was 79.4 kilos. And at some point, I was still like 2,660. And he was at like 80.1. And I'm just like, screw it. I need to like get ready to pay up. And writing a book takes some time. I gotta, I've got time now. I might as well do it. But what I found by writing the book was, I did this right before I had my breakaway year in 2018 where I won the U.S. championship and shot into the world elite when I'd been stuck in, like, you know, number 80 or so for a while. And I found that actually I think writing the book helped me a lot because I chose a topic that I, w I wanted to understand better, and I found some guiding principles that you can use in various positions. And I found myself applying them to my own games a lot. I mean, it was funny because it's supposed to be an instructional book for players much lower than me, but I really thought I was learning from it. And as a result... After this, I decided to write the sequel almost immediately just because I 
if for no other reason, because I thought it was helpful for my own play. And, uh, but yeah, that's why I decided to write it. Partially because I wanted to uh, improve my understanding of the game and partially because I lost a bet and not really because I wanted to write a book or get rich from it or anything. I mean, that, those were nice perks, but uh, I, I wrote it for basically selfish reasons. What surprised you most about writing a book? Because I have a lot of authors on, Sam, and they're like, that's their life. But then I'll have a bunch of athletes on who never wrote a book, and they're writing their first book. So what surprised you the most about writing a book? Um, I think what surprised me the most about this one was the proportion of what kind of work it was. Uh, maybe it's just because it's strictly a technical book, and it's not like a novel or anything like that. Uh, but I... If I had to proportion how much time was spent, I think 90% of the time was spent researching and 10% of the time was writing. I spent a lot of time looking for suitable examples to help illustrate the points I was trying to make. And there were a couple of cases where I realized the point I was trying to make was just wrong because while searching for suitable examples, I found more counterexamples than I did things that would support my point of view. Uh, the writing itself was extremely fast. I'm a decent, I'm a pretty good writer. I mean, that's, I think, thanks in part to having gone to school and college. I mean, I'm certainly not fantastic, but uh, in my syntax and word choice is pretty decent, and I can write quickly. And once I had the material prepared, the writing was actually really fast, but preparing the material was really what took the time. I'm on the train today coming home and getting ready to podcast with you, and I Googled you quick. Dude, you were on a reality show? How, how'd that, how did chess play come on a reality show? I, well, I think that's actually... Uh, uh, a very good sign in general, because if you think about how chess players were perceived, even as recently as when I was a kid, I think the general public image of them were scrawny nerds with tiny shoulders and giant glasses and nerdy voices who had never seen a woman in their entire life. And, and, and very that, reclusive. When, I, when you would think of a chess person, oh, he's a reclusive kid, he plays in a little chess club and stuff, and yet you're on a reality show completely right. breaking that stereotype. Right. So I think that but the thing is, I think that stereotype was largely born from truth a while ago. But now that professional chess has taken off, which really started in the 1970s and has just grown ever since, maybe 1960s, and it's just grown ever since. And we're seeing that the best players in the world now are not old guy, old Russian guys smoking their cigarettes while they're playing. Now you're looking at young men in very good physical shape, well-traveled, well-cultured, who make a lot of money. The, the perception of us is very, very different. And I was recruited for this show. I didn't even apply for it. I didn't okay. even, it, was the, it was the first season of Kicking and Screaming, and the only season, actually. I didn't even know this show existed. And I got an email from a casting director saying, and my, my first thought was this has to be my friends playing a prank on me. But no, <laughs> it was for real. And, uh, and I think if Smart is the new sexy or whatever, they, it's clearly showing when someone like me is getting recruited for reality TV. There's a whole ocean of the United States of America that you can pick people from to – all sorts of walks of life, and they chose a chess player. And I thought, and not not because I came to them, because they came to me. I thought that's a really good sign for chess players in general. And you, for example, you're not a chess player. You're a mainstream guy, reasonably popular, I suppose. But, I mean, you came to me. You know, it's this this is not something that was really happening before. And I'm very happy to see that mainstream people are really starting to respect chess players more. I think that's a great thing. I think a lot of it is the way that chess players have started to respect themselves more and, you know, sort of defy the stereotype that I previously described. How can chess players become more mainstream? Because if you told me there's sports people, like I said, athletes who never watch, just say, tennis, but Wimbledon's on, they're going to watch Wimbledon. Or 20 years ago, soccer wasn't as popular as now, but a big match, they're watching a match. If there's a huge chess match, if you told me the number 
top four USA players or top four international players, people are going to watch that even if they don't. People watch poker, Sam. How can uh, maybe the United States make uh, chess more popular to, for the well, viewing audience? There's a few things. Uh, one, the subject of poker is that when you're watching poker, you're a better player than the people playing the game because you see the, your opponent's cards. Yeah. Poker is a game of incomplete information. While, uh, so you will just know what's going on. It's very simple to understand. One problem with chess is, if you can imagine, is uh, imagine a soccer player who just takes a brilliant strike from 30 yards out, just kicks the ball 95 miles an hour, and arcs it perfectly and paints it right into the top post, down into the net. Like, it's an absolutely beautiful shot. The crowd goes wild. There's no, no matter how impossible that might be for someone like me to do, it is not impossible for me to understand. If I stare at a wooden board and move a piece of wood after 15 minutes of thought, three inches, this is not something that a normal person will understand the same way someone who has never played soccer before understands what he sees. So part of it is just chess being part of your culture. For instance, there are some countries like Armenia and Hungary where chess is a real part of their culture, and people are huge chess fans there. And uh, because we don't really have it in school here, at least not as a compulsory subject, uh, it's it's not as popular. Another thing we can do is make the games a little bit faster and more exciting. Nowadays, I think the games are too long. I'm very hesitant to speed them up a ton, but to get them to the point where they're the same length as in terms of time as your mainstream sports, where they're, let's say, between two and three hours, which is, I think, what most major sporting events last for, as opposed to upwards of five or six sometimes, yeah. people will be less likely to lose attention. And just having, you know, popular top players. So, uh, you know, the U.S., we've, we've had a, our crop of youngsters nowadays is growing really fast, and they're, they're going to be good in the future. I worry that people will not identify with them very well just because they see homeschooled kids who are not brought up the same way. And I don't mean to sound like I'm disrespecting these people at all. I know these kids that are, you know, let's say 18, 19 right now and are really good. They're fantastic players. They're good kids. And I don't mean to sound like I'm insulting them. They're just different. They're not, people don't really see themselves in that. And, uh, and so, and also we have um, a lot of extremely good players from foreign countries are coming to the United States, which also is fantastic. These guys are really good at chess. They're providing a lot of opportunities, but at the same time, you know, when in the U.S. championship for, if you have like a, a, a great American champion who has, let's say a pretty thick accent, that's, that doesn't make them a bad person. It doesn't make them any less of an American. They're still a great chess player and a great American player, but they're not, you know, the kids are not going to grow up thinking, oh, my God, this is my role model. Well, they're, not, they're not relatable, Sam. That's the problem. Unfortunately, they're not as relatable. Uh, that, that you can debate whether that's fair or not. Some might say that's horribly unfair, but that's unfortunately it's human nature. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these are not, again, these are not bad people. These are not bad players in any way. But uh, I think the biggest boom we ever had in chess was when we had Bobby Fischer who became world champion in 1972. He's the only American ever to win the world championship. And the Fisher boom arrived. And then we had just had a ton of kids starting to play chess. And then, like, our Olympic team from, like, the, let's say, the late 80s, just before I was born, was all American players and really, really good compared to what they were previously. Just be, I don't think it was because the training was any better. I think it was because there were more people interested. We had a deeper talent pool. And the ones who got good got really good. Well, it seems our USA team is good just by – I did a quick Wikipedia search. It's on the internet, Sam, so it's true. And we always compete. Like, we always seem to win a medal in the Chess Olympics, right? So it's uh, – right. So, for example, we won the gold in the in 2016. And we we tied for first and got silver 
in 2018. So, um, but what the big change was, I mean, there have been really two big changes. We've had one guy, Hikaru Nakamura, who's, uh, who's been fantastic for years and years and years, been one of the best players in the world, but he was just one guy. And he was an anomaly, and he was a hero to me. He's only like four years older. But when I was growing up, you know, he was 19 years old, and he was already just one of the best players in the world and really joining the top levels. So what has happened in uh, in the past, like, four years that turned us into such a powerhouse team is two things. One, I got, like, really good to the point – I'm not quite as good as Hikaru, but to the point where I'm one of the world's elite. And two is we had – two guys who are now, like, you know, number two and six in the world move to the U.S. from other countries and start playing for our team. And, 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 we, we, and we can take them, Sam? Like, if they come to the – they can be on our team? Yeah, there's there's basically no rules restricting okay. any <laughs> movements, uh, which is a long topic that has a lot of debate behind it, uh, but I don't really want to get into that. And I'm obviously aware that my own opinions are going to be biased on them as well. But uh, – and now we have another change, which is that we now have a third guy who's, like, number nine in the world who just moved to the U.S. as well. And we have another top star, Jeffrey Zhang, who's now about the same level as me, and he's much younger. He's like 18 or 19. So now we have six guys who are in the top in the world as opposed to when we had one. Three because they came here and two because they got there while growing up here. So all of a sudden we have a much stronger team than we used to. Two questions on that. One, where are your gold medals? Because I know you want some gold medals. And my cupboard up there. I'm told we're not going to have video, but uh, I don't know if you can see, but uh, I got Oh, yeah. that's ba- that's really badass. I'm looking at his gold medals right now. That's badass. And, uh, and, case, and, yeah. and two, and I don't want to cause any controversy. Is that bad for the United States? Maybe because maybe there's a player who is not as good as you just say from America, and yet other people come from other countries, maybe taking their spots. Is that like a well a touchy subject now? That's why this is controversial. For example, okay. it's very close, but our U.S. team is five players. If they were chosen today, I believe I would be the one kicked off of it. So. Uh, that's and, and yet you won a U.S. championship and everything, and yet. But that's partially why I can't be objective. This is the nature of controversy. There is positive and negative to these people coming to the United States. If there was only positive, nobody would complain, and if there was only negative, it wouldn't happen. There are clear winners and clear losers when this when this kind of thing happens. As to the overall implications, I, I mean, I have my opinions on it, but I try not to think about it much just because it's A, it's not within my power, and to do anything about it. And B, it just distracts me from what's most important, which is getting better at chess. At this point, I don't really care that much because I have won the U.S. championship. I have won the Olympiad on the United States national team. What I really want to do is push myself to become the best player in the world. And the guys who are between me, between me and that, it doesn't really matter what flag is next to their name. Uh, so for me, I certainly used to care about this more than I did. But it's definitely controversial. Like, you know, people have missed out on serious opportunities as a result. But, like, I mean, my own career, if I'm thinking about things that have happened, much younger, I missed it. At one point, I got third in the 2011 U.S. Championship, and I didn't make it back next year, largely because of an influx of more foreign players. But at the same time, if you think about me and that gold medal I have up there, would we have won that gold medal if I did not have two of the best players in the world on my team that weren't there the previous time because they had just arrived? And at the same time, uh, who got kicked off of that team as a result? It's You could go back and forth on this forever. It's very clear there's positive and negative that comes from it, but that's the nature of why it's controversial and some people like it and some people don't. It's, uh, I mean, I choose to try to focus as much on the positive as I can. You get recognized a lot, maybe not here, but in places like you said uh... – Armenian stuff, do you get uh, recognized? Well, I'm more likely to be recognized here just because I'm American. Um, 
like if I'm in a place like Armenia or Russia or somewhere, uh, and I'm like, you know, if I'm sitting in a cafe and looking at chess on my laptop, maybe someone will come over and say hi. And then if they, uh, if I say who I am, maybe they'll know me, but they won't recognize my face. They'll just recognize my name. Here it's happened. Uh, the, the funniest case was when I had this horrible gaffe earlier this year. Uh, I resigned. I gave up a position that was actually a draw. I didn't realize it. I thought I was just dead. But, in fact, there was a saving resource. And this is deeply embarrassing for a player of my level. And to my credit, I came back and won the next two games to finish the tournament, which I thought really showed strength of character. But, I mean, this was a real scandal. I had online trolls suggesting I was paid to throw the game and things like this. And it was it was really bad. But, uh, again, I came back, and I'm over and everything. But And I finished the tournament strong, and it was all good. But then I'm coming back to America, and it was I was groggy, and it was tired. It was a 13-round event. I had just been playing with the best players in the world. And the... The border control agent stamping my passport says, never resign another drawn position. <laughs> I, just, I just couldn't take it. This was very, very funny. That happened once. And then one time, I think like four or five years ago, I was recognized by a plumber. And I'd say if I walk around the streets and I'm going, if I'm just walking down the street or sitting in a restaurant or something, my guess is I get recognized by someone maybe like one time out of 50. So it's not super common, but it does happen. You said your parents originally weren't for you being a chess player. Is it lucrative on someone on your level, grandmaster, U.S. champion, traveling the world, uh, you're, you're well-known. Is it lucrative for you? Yes, for me it certainly is. Uh, but it's like any other sport, is that the very best players in the world make a ton of money, and it drops off very, very quickly. Like, I make a lot of money. I make a really good living. And I promise you, Magnus, who might be about twice as good as me, probably makes like 20 times as much. So – it's, it's much like any, and somebody, let's say like when I was number like, I don't know, a hundred in the world. Yeah, I don't know. Like I could probably make like 50 grand a year from playing, which is not terrible, but you know, I mean, I, I bought my own condo in California. 50 grand a year is not going to do that for you. And, uh, teaching is very lucrative. You can charge a lot of money for private lessons. And I teach some, but not very much. Um, but you know, that's, that's not the same. It's like you think about, you know, basketball, basketball coaches might make fine money, but do basketball players make good money? Well, they make amazing money, but you have to be really, really good. And if you're in the top 0.01%, you might be starving if you're not coaching. So it's kind of like that. Uh, if my parents could have seen into a crystal ball when I was young and just known that I would be this good someday, even when I was mostly focused on school for a while, maybe they would have thought differently. But given the information that they had at their disposal, I believe they absolutely made the right choice and raised me to the best of their ability and did the right things. Worst thing about being a chess player? The travel. I mean, it's, it's so much. I mean, you can't, it's hard to maintain relationships or friendships and things like that. You know, I, I dropped like half a million dollars on this condo that I spend like less than half the year and it's, the travel really gets to you. It's exhausting. Um, there's, uh, there's other bad things about it, but I can't really think of anything else that's bad about chess that wouldn't be bad about something else. There's a lot of political stuff on what tournaments you get invited to or or like the federation transfers we were talking about before. But any job you're in, there's going to be political stuff. Like, I mean, literally anything. If, you know, who the boss likes more. And chess, I actually think it's much more laid back than in a lot of things. But uh, just because at least while there can be surrounding politics and what you get invited to, you know, if we play a game and you beat me, I cannot deny that from you. Nobody can say, oh, well, I like Sam better, so he won. No, like, it's just a purely objective game. So there's it, there's a lot more fairness in that, which I appreciate. Best thing about being a chess player? Uh, I think the freedom. 
Um, just being able to make your own schedule, not having to answer to any boss or anybody playing the tournaments that you want to play. You know, if you want to take a day off, you don't have to tell anybody. You have to ask permission. You know, I mean, it's not really in my nature to take days off, but uh, I certainly can whenever I want. And uh, and just being able to do something I love for a living. Uh, you know, how many people get to play a game for a living? It's, it's pretty rare. And the money is very good, at least when you're at this level. So there's a lot of – I think the good obviously grossly outweighs the bad. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if, if not. Like I said, I have a lot of UFC guys on. I have a ton of boxers. I'm a big boxing guy. And um, they're in the ring one-on-one. Same you and opponent are on the chess board, you know, chess match one-on-one, looking across from each other. But when the fight's over, when the match is over, the fighters, they train with a group of people. You don't really train, train with a group of people, or do you? Like, do you have, like, sparring partners of people you practice well, with? I have, I have a coach, which is, uh, which is definitely helpful. Uh, but I, I have a few guys that I work with. Um, it gets harder as you get better. Like, if you imagine if you're number, like, 150 in the world – and you work with someone who's 140, the odds of you actually playing against them are not super common. Like, the one guy who I work with the most is from India. First of all, just him living in India is enough reason that we don't play the same events that often. But for, like, three or four years where we were working together, we were, like, just the same level. And I think we ended up playing three times, three competitive games over the course of four years. That's not that many. I mean, you know, over the course of those years, we probably – Total, each of us probably played something like 200, 250 serious professional games, and three of them are against each other. That's not really the worst thing. But if you're up to one of the absolute best players in the world, it's not so easy to pull off to find someone who's both going to challenge you and who you're not going to play with super often. So, for instance, uh, Magnus, the world champion, he has guys that he doesn't train with them, but they work for him. They do analysis and stuff. And I was one of those guys. I helped him for two of his world championship matches. And I really enjoyed working on his team with other guys who were around my level at the time and getting some feedback from him as the best player of all time. But then when I improved a bit, and obviously I'm not nearly as good as him, but I'm at the point where I'm starting to play with him now and then because I get invited to the top turn. So I played him for the first time last January. Uh, he kicked me off the team. And it wasn't there wasn't any hostility towards it. We still maintain good relations and everything. We play soccer and stuff during tournaments. We still hang out and like each other. But it was just it was impractical for him to have somebody feeding him analysis, knowing his strategies and openings and stuff like that, if he has to play with them now and then. So, I mean, obviously I wasn't happy with the decision, but of course I respected it. And that's, you know, it was his choice to make. But uh, I do try to train with people. I, I've got people I work with. I, I work with a lot of Indians. I don't know what it is. I mean, India is a massive country with lots of different cultures, but somehow there's a way they all manage approach chess in a way that I really appreciate. Uh, and I really like, so I, I find myself working with lots of Indian players. So when you're sparring, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll say the word sparring, when you're practicing on Magus' team, you flying over there or you just do everything on the computer? Uh, mostly. I mean, he flew me to a training camp in Lithuania and one to, uh, before a match and one in Norway. So. That's actually pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I really enjoyed working with this team. I learned a lot while I was there. I mean, it's uh, – uh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of people out there who have supported my chess career, either directly or indirectly, and he's one who I think I've learned a lot from. The, uh, not the experience I've had on his team. I've had you on for 50 minutes. I'm going to tell you my uh, my original plan was to talk chess and then just, like, bullshit with you for a while. But, like, I'm so intrigued. You're doing such a good job because, like, right. I don't know chess. I read the Bobby Fischer book. I think it was Endgame. I saw the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. Right. I'll read an article here and there. But you've made it – you disappointed me because I wanted to talk about other stuff, but you were so intriguing with chess. I got to – a couple more questions. Yeah. You and I hanging out at a bar. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? I access to everybody on my show. Uh, 
Matt Kunitz, maybe? I don't know who that is. Uh, he, he did my show. He did Fear Factor. He did uh, – he's, he's the producer of all the reality shows, so the best ones. So he did, Fear, yeah, he did Fear Factor. He did my show. He's currently got What the Fit with Kevin Hart. Like, oh, he's that, – I'm going to accept that's a good answer then. Okay. Okay. You know What the Fit? Or? Yeah. Yeah, so he's <laughs> the guy who organizes these shows. He'd be the coolest one. Favorite piece on the chessboard? King. Love it. I mean, come on. You, you take the other guys, you win, you lose yours, you lose, and he's the boss of the board. I mean, come on. It's good to be the king. Is being a chess player like you on your level, is it made or are you born with it? That's a cosmic level question that is very, very hard to answer. Ultimately, humans, we will never know the answer to a question like that. I choose to believe that it is made because I like the idea that we are not, we are responsible for our own destinies based on the choices we've made. And I think there's pretty good evidence for my claim when I just look at myself, because I grew up with some of the best kids in the United States, and I was fully aware that most of them were more talented than me. I mean, again, I'm very talented, but compared to the absolute elite, I just don't think I'm that good. And uh, there were various polls. Like, at, at some point, there were four players, myself, Ray Robson, Robert Hess, and Alex Lunderman. We were the four best players growing up in America. And there were some polls made. Who will go the farthest? And every single one I got last. It was just, and I, who can blame them? I was the lowest rated of them. And like, I was older than two of them and blah, blah. You know, the idea that I would have really gone far and away above them, all of whom I think are more talented than me. I think it just came down to me wanting it more, working harder and making the right decisions in ways that they didn't. And I don't, I like all the, all three of those guys. I like very much. And I maintain good relations. Um, like Robert doesn't really play anymore. He mostly is a commentator. And Alex Lunderman has been the, the coach of our national team, like, for example, for the last two Olympiads. And Ray Robson is our fifth guy who is on the team. He's certainly not making it next time because of Jeffrey improving. But uh, I choose to believe it's more about being made. I've always had a theory that no matter what you do, if you pour yourself 110% into it, you can get to, like, the top 1% of any field you want, but beyond that, you kind of have to have the gift. So if I were to give an example, at some point I made some comment like, oh, I ran a 545 mile. And my mother, who's now 61 and under five feet tall, says, oh, man, I, I could never do that. I was like, wait, really? You could never do that? You're telling me that if you abandoned your family today, just flew to Kenya and did nothing but run and spent all your money on the best nutritionists, like the best trainers, everything, and just ran – that within four years you couldn't do that. I mean, obviously I don't think she should. I mean, that would sort of be destroying her life. But my point was, I think you honestly could if you made it a hundred percent what you're, what you're doing. Uh, obviously most people shouldn't be doing that. And still a 545 mile, while very impressive, especially for someone of her height and age would not make you the world champion. It would just make you really, really, really good. And so that's sort of how I feel. You can get really, really, really good at just about anything you want. But beyond that, having some kind of innate ability is important. As we wrap this up, are you a social media guy? How can people follow you? Are you active on Facebook, Twitter? I have Facebook and Twitter. And uh, you can follow me. And my website is not like social media, but it's like you can buy my books there. You can contact me for lessons or tournaments or or appearances. I, I give talks and simultaneous exhibitions where I play multiple games once or like, or like speaking gigs, things like that. Anyone who wants me to talk to anybody or anything like that, you can find me on my website. You can follow my tournaments on my Facebook page or my Twitter account, uh, both of which should be very easy to find. I think 
GM Sam Shankle on Facebook and GM Shanky on Twitter. It should be very easy to find. But, uh, yeah, I do my best to stay connected with the world in that regard. Where's your next tournament? Uh, Isle of Man. And when is that? Uh, that's going to start on October 9th or 10th, something around there. When you go there, your family go with you, friends, or you just go there alone? No, I've been traveling alone since I was 15. That's another thing I could touch on as the last thing is one thing these, these homeschooled kids are, which is different, is – uh, they tend to be very focused on chess, which turns them into great chess players, but they get somewhat insulated from, uh, from adult responsibilities, even when they're like 18, 19, and they end up traveling with their parents for a little bit longer. They always end up, I mean, everybody matures. That's how it goes. Mm-hmm. They will be, they will be fine. I don't see them, any of them having developmental problems, but that's just another way they're different. But, um, yeah, uh, my mother visited me at the U.S. Championship in 2016. That was one of two tournaments anyone has ever come to. It was funny. I, I played my last turn with like my family coming when I was like 15 or anyone. And so then in early 2015, so I would have been 23 at the time, uh, I was invited to the Hawaii Chess Festival. And my parents were like, you know, it's been so long since <laughs> we really should come along and visit you and support you. I'm like, okay, that being the case, please come to Russia with you. Like, come to Hawaii instead. <laughs> it, was, it was just a lot of fun. But, uh, no, yeah. Let me let me actually just say, for example, I'm in um, Tel Aviv and you're there uh, playing. Do, do you guys have fans that come to these matches? Oh, yeah. Most of the fandom is online just because it's easy to stream. And also, uh, it's not like basketball where people are yelling and screaming. You have to be totally silent in the room when you're watching. So oftentimes when people are coming to the tournaments, they're just sitting in the commentary room where they've got like big screen TVs and they've got commentators explaining what's going on for, let's say, less advanced players who don't really – understanding the game so well, but can sort of get it when it's explained to them. Uh, but if you're going to do that, oftentimes it just makes more sense to do it from the comfort of your armchair at home. But we definitely have fans. Um, you definitely see people. I, I mean, I sign autographs, take pictures of every tournament I go to. Two things. One on the autographs. Two, why don't you sell any merchandise besides your book on your website? No shirts or anything? No, I'm not that popular. And it's it's also work I don't really want to do. Um, it's I mean, I have a manager, but I don't have, like, somebody to do the whole merchandise thing. In general, I think that's something you want to be a little bit better than I am before you start doing. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, my books, I sell pretty well and I have DVD series there as well. Every person who's come on my show, I had like 200 something guests. Like I said, astronauts, athletes, authors, everybody. I saw the the list. They were really interesting people. But, but, but here, here's the one, the one caveat, everyone who comes on, I send them something to sign to me. So I always try to make it different. Like, I had uh, two different astronauts come on. One signed his own astronaut figure for me. The other signed a NASA patch. I'm going to send you a chessboard, and you're going to sign it for me. I'm going to hang it up. Sound good? You got it. Hopefully this interview was okay for you because I was nervous because I never interviewed a chess player, and I was like, oh, I'm not even going to talk about chess. You made it so interesting and had me, like, completely off my, you know, quote-unquote script, like, intriguing, gave great comparisons. I had an absolute blast, man. Yeah, this was fun. I hope that your uh, listeners had as much fun as you, because, of course, they're the ones who really matter. But, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. And I'm generally always very happy to – I mean, I do tons of media stuff like this within the chess world, but very rarely outside of the chess world. And I think it's really great when we see, like, a a mix of, like, chess being introduced to more mainstream people who wouldn't really be following it otherwise. That's I think it's really important for chess players to do that. And I certainly hope I come across well and represent the game well in that regard. You completely destroyed the stereotype of that reclusive guy who doesn't talk to girls with the high glasses. Dude, like, good-looking dude, athletic, knowledgeable in so much stuff, man. You uh, you blew me away, brother. 
Yeah, thanks. Well, it's it's been fun, and uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Sam.